Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are such a loving and gracious God. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning, that in man's frailty, Lord, that you would be glorified. So Lord, we just ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just minister to our hearts, give us ears to hear, may we be receptive, and we do thank you that your Son is the reason for the season. May we never forget what Christmas is really all about. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. And no, I didn't swallow a frog, but my voice is kind of going sideways on me, but that's okay. I do actually feel great, I just don't have very much of a voice, but praise God for microphones, right? Amen? Well, this morning we're going to look, and I entitled the message for this week and next week, the title of the message is The Missing Link. And we're going to talk about the missing link between holy God and sinful man. And we're going to talk about the reason why Jesus came. In John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, we saw who Jesus is. And we know very clearly that it defines Jesus Christ as God. Amen? He's not one of many gods. He's not one path. He's not a way. He's not the most elevated of the gurus. He's not, he's not one of many uh, people we can turn to. He's not just a great prophet, but he truly is God. We saw in the first chapter that he's the Word. And what do you do with words? You communicate. So he's God. He's the communication of the Father to us. And Jesus Christ is the Word. We know that he's the creator, that he's the light of the world, a world that, that's completely dark. Jesus Christ came to illuminate the world, that he's the Lamb of God, and that he's the Son of God. We then saw him call his first disciples, and as an encouragement to each one of us, remember that he didn't call the most educated men or the most eloquent men. Who did he call? He called fishermen and tax collectors and people like that, and he called people that, from the world's perspective, weren't all that special, and he used them in a mighty and a powerful way. And the news to us is that God takes and uses people like us to do mighty and great things. He's not looking for people with you know, the, the greatest education or necessarily the people with the, the, the most charismatic. He's just looking for people that want to be used by Him, and He uses them in a mighty and a powerful way. Then last week we saw Jesus perform His first miracle. Remember He turned water into wine at a wedding? And remember how that's significant because wine is a representation of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the groom and we are His bride, and there could be no wedding apart from the shedding of His blood on the cross. We also saw Jesus get angry. And it was righteous anger. Remember, he went in and he cleansed the temple. He made a whip of cords and he drove everyone out of the temple. And why did he do that? He did that because they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. And sadly, there are many churches today that they've got the priorities messed up and that instead of magnifying and glorifying God, they've turned the church into a business. And it's really sad and it breaks the heart of God. And we saw that he brought a whip in and drove the people out because they had turned his father's house into a den of thieves. We saw Jesus predict his resurrection, and then lastly we saw him say, see that he could reveal the true hearts of men. So this morning, we're going to be looking at, again, not only who Jesus is, but why Jesus came. And this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to see him interact with two very different people. This morning, we're going to see him talk to a man who was one of the most religious people of the day. A man who, from the world's perspective, if anybody said someone was holy, they would have picked him. And then next week, we're going to see him talk to one of the most immoral women of the day. A woman who'd been married five times and was living with a man, and whose life was such a disaster that she would go out to get water in the hot noonday sun when nobody else was out there. All the other women would go out early in the morning when it was cool, or in the evening when it was cool, and she went out in the noonday sun because she was being so ridiculed by the world around her that she didn't, want, didn't even want to see anybody. 
And so whether it's the most righteous man who's ever lived, one of the most righteous men from the world's perspective, or this immoral woman, the answer's the same. And the missing link is the same. And we're going to see that be, over the next two weeks. So we're going to see, again, this most religious man, and we're going to see that God has a plan for him. So the missing link. You know, scientists are looking for a missing link, and they're never going to find it if they don't look up. Amen? They keep looking in the ground, and the, and the ground just keeps revealing over and over and over again that Jesus Christ truly is God. You can prove it scientifically, archaeologically. It's amazing to me that most of the four, foremost scientists in the original day were Christians. People like Newton and people, other people like that, Pasteur and others. These guys were on fire for God. These guys had a love for God. And God used them mightily. But I want you to know that scientists are looking for a Cro-Magnon man or something or some kind of missing link to, to link evolution to us. And you know what? It doesn't exist. And the reality is that lightning didn't hit a puddle and then, you know, some primordial ooze, and then it, you know, it grew out, and now it's you. The Bible says God created man in his own image, and God's not an amoeba. Amen? And so the missing link is Jesus Christ. There's a link between sinful man and holy God, and the link is not evolution. The link is our need for our Savior. So I want to talk about that this morning, and I want to talk again about the two divine appointments. First one we're going to look at this morning is Nicodemus. How to know for sure that you'll spend eternity with Him. And then we'll also look at John the Baptist. And for those of us who, who are already Christians, we're going to find out how we ought to live. So from Nicodemus, we'll find out how can we know for sure where we'll spend eternity. And then from John the Baptist, we'll find out how are we as believers to live our lives. What should we be doing? What did John the Baptist do? So let's begin in verse 1 of John chapter 3 and take a look at this man. Now I want you to know that John chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters as if every chapter as every chapter is, but it's a very significant chapter in the Bible. And there's a verse in it we're going to get to it that I'm sure probably all of you know by heart. And it's the reason that we know it by heart is its significance. But let's begin in verse 1. And know that the miracles of Jesus had gotten the attention of the Jews. He turned water into wine, he had driven them out of the temple, he had done all these things, he had seen into their hearts, and now because of that, we're going to see this meeting, this divine appointment, as I, was call, I would call it, between Jesus and this man, Nicodemus. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus' name means ruler of the people, and he truly was that. This guy was... You know, it, to put it in terms that we can understand, he was like the Pope of the day, okay? There were no Catholics then, but he was like the Pope of the day. He was like the most religious of all the religious men. Later, Jesus is going to say, the, call him the teacher of Israel. This guy was part of the 71-member Sanhedrin, this religious court that met every day. He wore the robes. He kept the rules. He kept the laws. And from the world's perspective, this guy was as holy as they come. Now Nicodemus, it says, was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews because those who had spiritual headship actually ruled over the Jews. The word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word to separate. And Jewish leaders who had separated themselves to strictest possible religious rules, they would, they would tithe out of their spices. They would come to church and everything they did, man, they had, were rules and regulations and actually their faith had become a burden. It was so heavy. And this was one of the leaders of this group, these Pharisees. But though he was this man that from the world's perspective was very religious and seemingly from the world's perspective was extremely holy, we see here that he knows that there's something missing. How do we know? Because he comes to Jesus. 
And you know what? That's what every one of us must do. We must at some point come to Jesus. Come to Him. And so he does that. He comes to the Lord, this man of the Sanhedrin, this religious man. And sadly, for him, the missing link to this point was going to church or temple and being a religious man and keeping the rules. And that was the link that he thought would bring him to God. But he'd been doing that. He'd been doing it maybe better than anybody else, but yet there was still something missing. And so because of that void that was still there, or as St. Francis of Assisi called it, that God-shaped vacuum that could only be filled by him, he comes to the Lord and he comes to him seeking to find out who he is, to find an answer. Again, from the outward appearance, as religious a man as he could be. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now this is the first, I, now I was a youth pastor for a long time, so forgive me, but this is the first episode of Nick at Night, right? Nicodemus coming at night. But Nick, Nicodemus, he comes at night, and why does he come at night? Because here's this man that during the daytime would go out and stand on the street corners and make sure everybody could see him. But you know what? When does he come to the Lord? He comes when nobody else will see him. You know what? I believe this is a picture or a type of hidden sin in Nicodemus' life. This man, from the world's perspective, was perfect and holy and wonderful. But God sees our heart. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And he comes to Jesus by night. He doesn't want to be ridiculed by the other members of the Sanhedrin. He wants to be able to come and talk to him, but he doesn't want anybody else to know about it. Quite often, that's how people are with God. They don't want to have an, an outward relationship that everybody can see. They want to come to him in the quiet. You know, can you tell me? But, you know, can you tell me? You know, hey. And I mean, that's how he came to the Lord. He comes to the Lord at night. He feared openly associating with Jesus. And this man of authority who sought the praise of men in the daylight comes to the Lord in darkness. Again, a picture of his hidden sin. And he says, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What got his attention? The miracles. He saw the miraculous and he said, wait a minute. There's something different about this Jesus. He heard Jesus speaking, and he heard the difference in the authority of his voice. And he said, there's something different about this Jesus. I must find out what it is about him. But if I go during the day, my friends are going to ridicule me. They're going to they're they're mock me. I might lose my position. People might think I'm crazy. So I'll go to him at night, and I'll ask him in quiet, tell me, tell me, help me understand. Do you do these miracles? What must I do to have eternal life? Now, we know that was the question he had in mind, but he never asked the question. You know why? Because he never has to. Look at John chapter, look at verse 3. Look what it says. And Jesus answered and said to him. Now, do you see Nicodemus answering, asking any questions prior to this verse? The answer is no. But don't you love the fact that God knows our heart even before we, sh- we, we open our mouths? Jesus answers his question. He comes to him at night. He comes to him in secret. He says to him, we know you're a good teacher. We know you must come from God because of the works that you do. And before he can even answer the question, Jesus gives him the answer. And let me just tell you this morning, whatever the question you have is in life, there's one answer, and it's Jesus Christ. Amen? You're struggling in your marriage, the answer is Jesus. You're struggling in your finances, and you're struggling with trying to understand what life's about. You're struggling with trying to figure out what God's plan is for your life, trying to understand why you were even born, trying to understand what Christmas is about. It's all about Jesus. He brought us to this earth to have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. And that's what it's all about. 
Nothing else is going to matter. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. So he answers his question. He answers and says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, people think that Billy Graham made up the term born again, but I think if you look at John chapter 3, it wasn't Billy Graham, it's Jesus. I've had people tell me that. Oh, born again. Billy Graham made that up. Really? You know, John chapter 3. Jesus said, you must be born again. Not you can be, you should be, you might want to think about possibly being. He says, you must be born again. And you know what? For us to have an intimate relationship with God, we must be born again. Now what does that mean, to be born again? Jesus looks at him and he directs his statement, not at the black robes that this man was wearing, not at his outward religion, But he cuts right to the quick and says, you must be born again spiritually. You know what? God desires that we have an intimate relationship with him. But it's a spiritual relationship. And the sad reality is that while every human being on this planet who's walking around is alive physically, most are spiritually dead. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And that could also be termed born from above. We've all been born physically, but we must also be born spiritually. And that means that we are spiritually dead. You know, before you came into the physical world, you had no clue what it was about. When you were in your mother's womb, you had no idea what the physical world was all about. No clue. You were blind to it, oblivious to it, ignorant to it. And the same is true when it comes to spiritually. We are spiritually ignorant until we've been born again. Amen? You know, until we know the Lord, our eyes are, are covered over. And we have no idea what life is really all about. And so Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, he comes to him by night, this religious man of the day, this guy, the Pope of the day, this most holy man, and he said, you must be born again. Wait a minute, I'm the Pope. I'm the most religious man around. What are you talking about? I'm the leader of the Sanhedrin. People come to me and seek my counsel. People come and tell me how holy I am all the time. What do you mean I must be born again? But Jesus doesn't look at our outward works. The Pharisees thought their physical ancestry, their outward religion, their piety qualified them for entrance into the kingdom of God. They had a false hope. And you know what? If you're hoping in anything other than Jesus Christ this morning, you've got a false hope. There's only one way that we can get into heaven. And Jesus is the only way. And I'm thankful that he's the only way. I'm thankful there's not 85 different paths. I've got to figure out which one's the right one. I'm so thankful that the gospel is such a simple and easy message to understand. And so he said, you must be born again. Born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless we're born again, we cannot enter into heaven. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? No. This is typical of the world when you share with them spiritual truth. They respond to you in a physical answer. Jesus is talking to him about spiritual truth, and he says, well, can I crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? I don't understand what you're saying. And again, this is a well-educated religious leader, but he didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. He was, you know, a religious man, but he was spiritually ignorant. And Jesus was speaking about spiritual birth, but he thought he was talking about a physical one. Today, when you talk to people about being born again, they usually respond from a physical point of view. One of the things they say is, well, my great-grandparents were missionaries. Oh, yeah, I know about God. My great-grandparents were missionaries. 
And that's wonderful. And that's a great heritage. But what in the world has that got to do with you? You know, we, we start looking at physical responses. Just, well, you know, I'm a member at such and such a church. I go every Christmas and Easter faithfully, and, and I'm a member of that church, and that means that I, you know, I, you know, hey. And when the plate comes by, I put $5, I'm, you know, I give to charity, man. I go down, I help people, you know, I go out, I'm a charitable guy. Those are all wonderful things, but it has nothing to do with our spiritual problem. We try to respond with physical answers to a spiritual problem, and that's what Nicodemus does. He says, well, wait a minute, you know, can I crawl back into my mother's womb again? And the Lord's response to him is basically that we, you know, just telling him that you, you've missed it. It's a spiritual problem. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, there's some debate about this. To me, it's very clear there should be no debate. The water is physical birth. That's what it is. Born of the water, born of the... And, how, and, the, it says, and the way you can tell is looking at verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So we need to both be physically born, but we also need to be spiritually born again. You know, it's great to know that we can become partakers of the divine nature of God. When you are born, you take on the nature of your parents, Right? When you're born, you take on the nature of your parents. And the reality is, that's a sin nature. Going back to Adam and Eve, that we're born with a sin nature. No one has to teach you how to sin. Amen? I don't have to teach my kids mine. They figure that out too. Mine. All right, right? I mean, when they're little, it's all about me. They wake up, they're crying. You feed me, you take care of me, you clothe me, and if you don't, I'm going to scream. That's what babies do, right? They're born with the Adamic nature. It's all about me. But the reality is that that's the way we were born. We're born the nature of our parents. But when we're born again, we take on the nature of our Heavenly Father. And what I mean by that is we're still sinners, but now we've been saved by grace. We're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Our eyes, our focus, our mind, our passions, everything changes, and we become one of His children. That which is born of, of water, you need to be born both of the water and of the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. You're all in here. You've been born of the flesh, but you need to be born again. You know, God brought you here by divine appointment this morning. And if there's even one of you that came and you've never given your life to the Lord, He's telling you this morning that it's not by chance that you're here, that He loves you so much that He was willing to die for you, and that you must be born again. You must give your life to Him. You know, the word born again is not just repairing of the old, but putting on putting the old to death and changing it for the new. It says here in, in 2 Corinthians that therefore if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away, all things become new. When you give your life to the Lord, when you're born not just of the flesh, but you're born of the Spirit, everything changes. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a different person. And you remember who he's talking to here. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Nicodemus. But wait a minute. Can you imagine being Nicodemus? Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. Wait a minute. I, I'm down at the temple, man. Everybody comes to me seeking counsel from me. I'm the one making the sacrifices in the temple. I'm the one that's ruling over people. People come in and kiss my ring, if you will. I'm the one wearing the black robes. I'm the one getting all the accolades. People keep telling me how wonderful I am and how holy I am. And you're telling me that I'm missing something? The answer is yes, you are. It's not about how holy you are, but it's about how holy God is. The only way we can enter into God's family is through spiritual birth. And I want to say this. You are a slave to that which you've been born to. If you've only been born of the flesh, you're a slave to your flesh. 
Your whole focus, passion, and desire in life is to feed your flesh. Make sure your flesh is satisfied. You, as a youth pastor, I used to tell the kids all the time, you know, there's a, there's a fleshly tiger and a spiritual tiger battling, battling for your, uh, control of your life every day. And which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most. And that's for us as Christians. That, you know, if we're feeding our flesh and we're not feeding ourselves spiritually, we're going to struggle in our walk with God. But if we're feeding ourselves spiritually, we're, gonna, we're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Bible says. But if you're not born again, there's no battle going on at all. You're just a slave to your flesh. All it is, is all about feed me, take care of me, we're selfish, it's all about us. And he's saying, he's telling them very clearly, look, you must be born again. Your life must be changed. Your desires must change. Your passions must change. Verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So how did Nicodemus react? He was marveling. How do we know? Because he said, don't marvel. He was sitting there going, whoa, I, what? I must be born again. You know, I thought he was, you know, he may have thought that the Lord was going to put his arm around him and say, Nicodemus, you're doing a great job, man. Just go on back and keep doing what you're doing. Matter of fact, let me kiss your ring. You know, that didn't happen. He shows up and the Lord says, you must be born again. What do you mean? Yeah, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. But I'm the guy that, did you know who I am? Do you see the robes? I got the big long tassel on the bottom here. Do you know who I am? The Lord says, don't marvel. He must have been sitting there saying, you know, I was born a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm a religious leader. I'm zealous for the law. I'm outwardly pious. I've got everything going on. And you know what? If the people were to vote today, they'd vote for me as the most holy guy in the world. And you're telling me that something's missing. And the Lord said to him, yeah, you must be born again. You know what? It's not our good good works that save us, you guys. It's his good work. Amen? You can't be good enough. Here's Nicodemus from the world's perspective, as good as it gets. And Jesus says, you can't be good enough. You must be born again. If you're here this morning and you think, well, man, maybe God grades on a curve. You know, Charles Manson's on the bottom, Mother Teresa's on the top, and, you know, I'm probably in the top half. And, you know, no, I can stand before God, I'll probably be okay. The Lord would tell you, no, you must be born again. Because God can't have one sin in heaven, because if he did, he'd have earth part two. And there can be no sin, and we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and that's why he tells us all that we can't be good enough. Now, it's interesting that the next week we're going to look at this immoral woman who thinks that she's so sinful that God can't forgive her. And there's two extremes that people take. You know, and the reality is that you can't be good enough and you all, that, that you can get into heaven without Him, and you can't be so bad that God won't forgive you either. Amen? Praise the Lord for our God. Amen? He's a God who loves us. He's a gracious God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But I want you to know that if you're trusting in your good works, it'll never be good enough. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does all the leading. Man doesn't lead the Spirit, the Spirit leads the man. You know, sadly, there's many out there trying to tell the Holy Spirit what he needs to do. Holy Spirit doesn't need Pastor Dave's input. Amen? Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and directing, and we follow him. He doesn't follow us. And he's saying that's where the power comes from. It's the Holy Spirit who leads and guides and directs. And the Holy Spirit is the one that draws us to salvation. And it's the Holy Spirit who's working on Nicodemus' heart right at this moment. He's hearing the message, and the Holy Spirit is working on his heart. And you know what? Maybe there's some of you this morning, and the Holy Spirit's working on your heart. 
Someone invited you to church, you came, it's near Christmas time. I'm so glad you're here, praise the Lord. But know that the Holy Spirit is drawing you, and it's Almighty God who loves you. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Again, how come I don't know about this? I've been studying the Torah my whole life. I live at the church. There's no one more religious than me. How come I don't know about How come I've never heard about this before? You know what? He had head knowledge, but he had no heart knowledge. And you know the sad part about this? Is I believe there's a lot of people who are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. What does that mean? That means you know about God here. You know about Him, but you don't have a relationship with Him here. We can know all about God, but we must have a relationship with God. I've used this analogy with you guys before. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I could tell you where he went to school. I could tell you how many championships he won. I could tell you what number he wears and all that kind of stuff. But I got an elevator with Michael Jordan. That guy would have no idea who I am. I'd be like, hey, Mike, how you doing? He'd be like, do I know you? I don't know who you are. I'd probably have his bodyguards throw me off the elevator or something, right? And the reality is that I can know about him, but I don't know him. And the reality is there's many, many people walking around this planet today that know all about Jesus. Well, I know when he was born, and I know how he lived, and I, and I, I know that you know, it was 2,002 years ago, and we celebrated his birthday on Christmas, and at Easter we talk about his resurrection from the dead, and I know those things up here, but you're going to miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance between your head and your heart, because it can't just be something I know about, but we must have a relationship with him. Nicodemus, bro, you know all about me here. You've heard about the Messiah here. You've heard about the Word here, but you must know me here. How come I don't understand these things? He's still in the dark. And Jesus answers and says to him, and what was Nicodemus' problem? Look what it is. Jesus has said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? The word there refers again to him being the highest even among the Sanhedrin the Pope of the day. Are you the teacher and you don't understand? Verse 11. Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Who's this we here? Who's the we here? It's a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He said, we testify and you don't understand. Why? Because the Holy Spirit must open our eyes. Salvation can only come as the Spirit of God moves in our hearts and we receive Him as our Lord and as our Savior. The religious leaders were followers of the law, they were followers of religious tradition, but they would not heed the words of the very Messiah that the law pointed to. This is the same weed that we see in creation in Genesis 1.1. What happens? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the word for God there is Elohim, and that is a plural word, God. Elohim, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Earlier, when Jesus was baptized, just days before this, what happened? Who remembers when he was baptized? He came up out of the water, and what happened? The dove, Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The sky opened up, and God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Picture the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This guy's been going to church his whole life. This guy's a religious leader of the day. This guy knows more about the, bio, the Old Testament than maybe everyone on the planet, and he's still spiritually blind. You know, the sad part is there's so many people that are in that same boat today. Nicodemus' promise is still prevalent today. People try to earn God's favor through good works or through tradition while they're completely ignorant to what the Bible says. And their ignorance is rooted in unbelief. They said they believe Moses, 
but they wouldn't believe Jesus. Verse 12. If, you've told you, if I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly things? I've explained this to you in a simple way and you just don't even understand. How are you going to understand when I give you spiritual truth? And the only way we can understand is the Holy Spirit illuminating it to us. Verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who comes down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. No one has ascended from heaven and returned with heavenly wisdom, only Jesus Christ who descended from heaven has the true heavenly wisdom. Why? Because Jesus is the Word, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So Jesus Christ is the answer. And so people are wandering around trying to find the answer. What is life about? Where am I going to find peace? Where am I going to find hope? Where am I going to get joy in my walk, in my life? How am I going to understand what it's all about? I'll tell you what, I can't imagine living this life and not knowing Jesus Christ. I cannot even imagine what it would be like. Praise God for His love and His grace that by the power of the Holy Spirit He drew me into a relationship with Him. It has nothing to do with my good works. It has everything to do with the good work He did on the cross. But I can't imagine going through the struggles of life without having my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my God as my best friend who walks with me, who leads me, who watches over me, who directs my life. And I can't imagine if you're here this morning and you don't know Him what your life must be like. I talk to people all the time and they think, if I just get the better job, then I'll be happy. If I can just get married, then I'll be happy. If we just have children, if my kids would get into college, if, you know, if, if I get a promotion, and we always think there's one more thing that somehow is going to give us the peace that we need. And then we get that, and there's still no peace. Why? Because peace only comes from knowing the Prince of Peace. Amen? And until you know Him, you're going to keep striving and struggling. You can be like Nicodemus. You can wear the black robes. You can do all the religious things, but you still will not know our Lord and our God and our king. Verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I love how Jesus would always relate to people using a parable or a story that they would understand. Who was an Old Testament scholar? Nicodemus. So Jesus takes him to Numbers chapter 21 and gives him a Bible study. I love it. So Jesus gives, you know, Jesus gave Bible studies, and he did. He takes him to the Old Testament, and he said, now, as Moses, as it says there in verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, in Numbers 21, the children of Israel were in complete and total rebellion to God. They were disobeying God, they weren't walking with, they were complaining, they were murmuring, and God sent serpents into the camp. Now, a serpent is a type or picture of what in the Bible? Sin or Satan, right? And so, these serpents are in the camp, and they start biting the people, and the people that are bitten die. Because what does sin do? Brings forth death, the Bible says. So these serpents, type of sin, are biting the people and are falling down dead. But what happened in Numbers 21 is that Moses, instructed by God, put a serpent on a pole. A brass serpent on a pole. Remember brass, if those of you been coming on Wednesday nights, brass is always a picture of judgment in the Bible. And he holds this pole up, and any of the people when they were bitten, if they would look at the pole then they would live. Now, why would you look at a pole with a serpent on it? Then that, that almost sounds like voodoo or something, man. What is that all about? Looking at a pole with a serpent on it. Why would you do that? That seems occultic. What is that? Why would he do that? And they would look up at the pole with the serpent on this pole, and they would be healed. Now, serpent is a picture of sin. And Jesus clarifies and answers Nicodemus' question that he might have even had when he studied this. Why would God 
send a serpent and then have a pole with a serpent on it? And the Lord answers his question and he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This serpent on a pole was a picture of something to come and what was it? Jesus on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The serpent on the pole was a picture of Jesus on the cross. Because that serpent was a picture of sin, and Jesus became sin for us, and he was lifted up. And those of us who have been bitten by sin, which is everybody in this room, and it's going to produce death, the only way we can be healed is to look to the cross. The only way that we can be freed of this this thing that sin does to us is to look to our Savior. And through Him, we can be born again. And we can be saved, born from above. Amen? And so we've all been bit. Now where are we going to look? Don't look for the venom down at the medical store or whatever, you know, anti-venom. You need Jesus. Amen? And so he says, look up. And he says to him, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's educating Nicodemus in the Old Testament. And I love it because Nicodemus probably thought, I'm the scholar. No one knows the Bible, no, Old Testament like I do. And here Jesus gives him a Bible study. Let me explain to you what Numbers 21 is all about. And no doubt he knew the heart of Nicodemus. He answered his question before he asked it, and now he's giving him a Bible study. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, who is this guy? I didn't understand it. And now you can understand. Verse 16, got to be probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. You guys all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know what? This word was given to a man who was extremely religious, who from the world's perspective had it all, and the Lord's given him the plan of salvation. And the reason this verse is so quoted is because of the simplicity of the gospel in it. For God so loved the world. I want to break this verse down for you. For God so loved the world. Why did Jesus come? Here's the answer. Because he loves the world. People think that God's up in the sky holding a lightning bolt waiting for us to make a mistake so he can smoke us. That's not our God. Amen? He's a loving and a gracious and a merciful God who'd rather die than live without you. Who's numbered the hairs on your head. Who loves you so very much. You are his treasured possession. That's who he is. For God so loved the world. The word so emphasizes the intensity of that love. That even though we're proud, we're self-centered, we're sinful, we're wicked, He knows every one of my sins and He loves me anyway. And He doesn't love our sin, but He loves us. And the word there for God so loved the world, the word there for love is agape. And we've talked about what that is. That's a selfless love. A love that loves something outside of itself more than itself. A love that is unconditional, a love that never stops, a love that never changes. That's our God. He's a loving God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The word there for begotten is unique, one of a kind. God manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. How valuable are you to God? How do you determine the value of something? What somebody's willing to pay for it. How valuable are you to God? He gave His Son to die that you might have life. Anybody tells you you're of no value, remember how valuable you are to God. Let me tell you something. If I had to give my kids, if I had to give my kid, one of my kids to die for one of my best friends, it would be extremely difficult if not impossible. But to give one of my children for my worst enemy, that ain't happening. No way. Sorry. Too bad. He's going to die if he doesn't have something for your son. Your son will die. Too bad for him. Right? I mean, wouldn't that be, that's the way we feel about it, right? 
No way. My son's way too important to me. I love my children. And I've told you this story before. I'll never forget my son Johnny being three years old and getting lost at Disneyland. Oh, man. And, you know, and it's funny because I don't get up to, I'm, most of you know me, I, I don't get angry, I don't get up to, I just don't. It's by God's grace, the way he made me. And I, even then, I didn't, I was just praying. My wife was screaming at the security people to shut Disneyland down until we found him, right? She was being a mom. Better shut it down, lock the doors, we're going to find him, right? And that's a mom, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, now, I mean, now, what are you doing? Move, right? I mean, and I'm going back through, got lost in this little Toy Story maze thing, and I come out, and all I'm doing is my heart's beating through my chest, and I imagine going home without my son. Oh, man. And I, I was just praying. Lord, help me find him. Lord, help me find him. Lord, help. And I think about how my heart felt when I was away from my son and how my heart broke. And you know what the Lord was ministering to my heart even then? Is, Dave, this is how I felt when you were away from me. This is how I feel about my people when they don't know me. The people I died for when they don't have a relationship with me. And I was anxious to find him. And I'll never forget coming downstairs and running all over this place. And I finally look and he's sitting on his knees playing a video game. Three years old, has no idea he's lost, right? And I pick him up, oh man, I run back upstairs, and oh man, it was, it was, it was a joyous moment. But can, I can't imagine giving him for my enemy. But then at the same time, I see God's love for me in the way that my heart was just desperate to find my son, and he was oblivious that I was even looking for him. You know what? The Lord is desperate to have a relationship. He loves you so much. And you might be playing a video game. He might be just oblivious to his love for you, but I want you to know that he's, he seeks you and he loves you and he desires to draw you into himself. And you know what I did when I found my son? I didn't spank him. I held him in my arms and started weeping. Because I'd imagine leaving Disneyland without him. My heart was, oh, it was breaking. And when I found him, I thought, what a joyous moment. And you know what? When you come to the Lord, do you know that that's how he feels? The Bible says all the angels in heaven rejoice when even one person comes to know him. He loves you so very much, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for you. What a gracious and a loving and a merciful God. And what do we do? That's what He did. So how do we respond? That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Jesus gave this gift to all mankind, and all we must do is receive it. The word believe there means to know by test. Not to just know, but to know because I've tested it out and I know that it's true. How do we respond? Here's the reality. If I were to offer my car to somebody, the gift is offered to everyone, but it must be received individually. The gift is offered universally, but it must be received individually. It's a gift that's for everyone here. It is desired that none should perish, no, not one. But you know what? Nobody else can take that gift for you. Nobody else can receive salvation for you. Your mom and dad can't take it for you. God has no grandchildren. They can drag you to church every Sunday and praise the Lord that they do, but at some point, it can't be mom and dad's God. It's got to be your God. Going to church doesn't take it for you. Doing good works doesn't take it for you. Being a good person, even reading your Bible or praying doesn't take that gift for you. There must come a point when you confess your sin and say, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe you're my Lord, my Savior, my God. I, want, I accept your free gift. There must come a point where that happens. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. To know by test. I love this analogy. There was a man, it's a true story, walking back and forth across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Did it a couple times. He said, how many believe I can do it again? And he starts walking back and forth. He comes back. How many believe I can do it with a man on my shoulders? I'll go, yeah, 
All right, who wants to get on my shoulders and go across with me? Oh, no, 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 no. I believe it if you take him, but I, I, I ain't going, right? And you know what? There's a reality is that we can say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there is a God. I believe it. I, I believe it. You know what? There's got to come a point where we get on his shoulders and we say, Lord, you're my God, my king, and I give you my life, and I, I believe you by test. I know you're God. I don't just know about you, but I know you, and I'm going to give my life to you. That's where we must come. And the, where it says there that whoever believes in him should not perish, the word perish there, I love the fact that no one has to perish. A way has been provided for salvation. Nobody has to spend eternity separated from him. And then it says there after that no one should perish but have everlasting life. I love everlasting. How long is everlasting? How long is that? I mean, it gives you a headache, right? I mean, 50 billion years from now, what would still be... And he's outside of time and space. There is no time. No clocks in heaven. Did you know that? No watches, no clocks. We can keep in no time. We're going to be there forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Everlasting life. We're talking about eternity. This is pretty significant. Amen? Hey, let me clue you in. You're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive. Amen? Did you know that? I mean, you might think, oh yeah, you know, 80, 80, 100 years, that's not very long compared to billions. And everlasting life. And here's the good news. If you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, He comes to live in you now. Eternity doesn't start when you die. It starts now. I already have everlasting life. Christians don't die. They just move. Amen? You close your eyes on earth and you open them up in heaven. You move to a much better neighborhood. Praise the Lord. And so here's the reality. Is that I have everlasting life now. Not because of the good works I've done, but because of what He did for me on the cross. Praise the Lord for His love and His grace and His mercy, but has everlasting life. Those of us who have been born again, we have it, and we have it right now. And you know what? I praise God that I don't have everlasting life on earth. How about you? Amen? I'm glad that it's going to get a lot better than this. You know, if you know the Lord, this is as bad as it gets. It's only going to get better and way better than you can imagine. And if you don't know the Lord, this is as good as it gets. That's not good, right? It's going to get a lot worse. I praise the Lord that we're going to be in heaven. We're going to see our Creator, and life is going to be wonderful. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him may be saved. The world was, has condemned itself a long time ago. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, condemned already. Condemnation came at that moment, because they chose to sin. Choosing sin and death. God is not a harsh cruel ruler anxious to pour out his anger on mankind his heart is filled with tenderness and love toward man so he didn't come to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved jesus has so much love for us that he paid the uttermost price he came here to suffer and to bleed and to die that you and i might have a relationship with him but look at the last words of verse 17 that the world what does it say right after that what are the two words that the world what say it out loud the world what through him might be saved so, there's only one way, God said, we can get to heaven, and Jesus is the only way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So guess what? Buddha. No, can't get there, right? Buddha's dead. Muhammad, dead. Hare Krishna, dead. Mary Baker, Eddie. Charles Taze Russell. All these leaders of all these cults and all these religions, they're all dead. And you can't get there through the philosophies of men. There's only one way. It's only through Him. Through Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way we can get to heaven. It's only through Him can we be saved. Praise the Lord for that. I'm, I'm so thankful that it's such a simple 
truth to understand if we'll just open our hearts and our eyes. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The difference between perishing and living, condemnation and salvation is very simple. While the most incredible, again, and significant decision of all time is how are we going to relate to God? What are you going to do with Jesus? Everybody makes a decision about Jesus. People try to say, well, I, you know, I just, I, I just don't participate in that. Well, no decision is a decision when it comes to our Savior. Amen? And you know what? Nobody can dispute the fact that no one has ever lived who's had a greater impact on the world than Jesus Christ. And the amazing part about it is he never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. He lived 33 years on this planet, only three years of public ministry. He died, you know, outside of the city on a cross. And again, no one has had a greater impact on the history of mankind than Jesus Christ. Nobody. What's the date today? December 22nd, 2002. 2002 years since what? Since Jesus. Amen? A.D. Anno Domini, which what does that mean? In the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ had the greatest impact of anybody. And you've got to, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's the question this morning. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to ignore him? Are you going to reject him? Are you going to say, be my Lord, be my Savior, be my King? I want to serve you. I want to know you in an intimate and a personal way. You know what? When you come to know Him, you live a life here and now filled with joy, a life that has meaning, not just knowing about God, but having Him as your best friend dwelling inside of you. You know, when you're born again, what happens? God come, You don't become God like some people would teach. You're not God, okay? You thought, think you are, we can talk after, but you're not God, right? There's only one God. But here's the good news. God comes to live inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, everything's different. Amen? How many, can tell, how many of you have been saved in the last five years? Raise your hand, maybe ten years. Isn't there a huge difference in your life from before and after? It's night and day. You're a dead man, dead man, dead woman, walking around, didn't know what life was about. You, got, you gave your life to Jesus Christ and everything makes sense, finally. Is your life perfect? No. Do you still have struggles? Yes. But do you understand and know what life's about? The answer is absolutely. You're heaven bound. And it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? You know where you're headed. You know what life's about, and you're not walking it all by yourself. You know what? We can have a life pursuing uh, peace from fleshly desires and from money and relationships and position and possessions. And you know what? You'll never be satisfied because the Bible says your flesh will never be satisfied. They asked Rockefeller, how much money do you need to be happy? How much money did you need to be satisfied? Was it 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million? What's the answer? He goes, the answer is a little bit more. You know, no matter how much you got, you want more. Because your flesh will never be satisfied. Why? Because the vacuum that's inside all of us is meant only for God. You can stick money in there. You can stick popularity in there. You can stick alcohol and drugs and sex and all that other stuff in there. And you'll never be satisfied. But you put Jesus in there because he's the only one that will fit. And everything will finally make sense. Verse 19, and it says there, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. You know, here's the sad part. With so much at stake, why do most people reject our precious, loving Savior and, and, and when He offers to die in their place and say, No, I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to die for me. The cross comes, No, I don't want it. No, I don't want it. People say, Oh, Lord loves you. I don't want His love. I don't care. I've got people tell me that. I don't want God to love me. You ever admit it to somebody? And I don't want them to love me. Dude, what's up? You don't want someone to love you? Yeah, oh, no, I don't want them to love me. Why? Why is that? Why do people act that way? Why are people so hard 
toward a loving God who all he did was come and die for you. He came and suffered in your place so that you might have eternal life, and you're angry. Why is that? Why do people reject him? Let me tell you why. Because it says there in that verse that they love darkness rather than the light. Why do they want nothing to do with God? Because they love their sin. I love sinning. Now let me tell you something. Your flesh loves sin. And you know what? The Bible even says that sin is fun for a season. Isn't that true? You know, initially sin's fun. Oh, this is great, man. I'm having a great time, right? And, you're, you, know, and you don't realize you're, it's no good. I mean, you know, you're, you're drinking a pot, whatever you do. The next day you're puking in the gutter and you got a headache. It's killing you. It's no fun anymore, right? I mean, it's fun for a season. But it's really destroying us. And people, why do they reject God? Because they love darkness rather than the light. What does light do? Light reveals, illuminates what's in the darkness. Sin looks okay until you realize where it's headed. Right? You're in a dark room, nobody sees what you're doing. Somebody shines a halogen light in your face, and you know what? Whoa. You look in the mirror and you find out you're covered in boils. Right? You find out that sin's decaying away your body. You find like it's destructive. You go, oh man, this isn't good. And then you got one or two choices. You either repent and be restored, or you say, man, get that light away from me. Sadly, most people say, get that light away from me. They love darkness rather than the light. Man, you, why do people get upset with you when you, tell people about the, when you tell them about the Lord? People don't want to hear about Jesus. Why? You know what? You can talk about Muhammad all day, and it doesn't seem to bother people. Buddha. You can put a little Buddha in your store and put apples in his lap, you know, and all that kind of stuff like you see, right? And people don't get all upset. And when people curse, they don't say, oh, Buddha. Do they? Why? Because it's Jesus is the light of the world. And he is the one that illuminates the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And he is the one that people say, man, don't talk to me about Jesus. I've had friends, I started talking about, don't, don't stop. I mean, they get violent. Dude, stop, don't stop, shut up. You know, bro, lighten up. Why are you so upset? I don't want to hear about that Jesus stuff. You know why? We don't want to be accountable for our sin. We don't want that light in our face. We don't want, but you know what? For us who know God, it's the, he's a light unto our feet. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's through that light he guides and leads and directs our life. And these guys run away. Why? Oh, dude, don't, don't be, give me that halogen light treatment, man. I don't want to see it. We're not going to get through the whole chapter this morning. I just figured it out. It's not going to happen. They want to turn off the light because they want their wickedness not to be exposed. But you know what? Who's the light of the world today along with the Lord? Who's the light? We are. This is a light of mine, right? Have you guys Sunday school? I'm going to let it shine, right? I'm a mess. You know I'm a mess. I go to the Baymont Christian program, and first graders are singing, this is a light of mine, and your pastor's in the back of the room with 2,000 people weeping like a four-year-old. I, when I see kids sing about Jesus, it kills me. It just, it just kills me. They're singing this, don't let's say, blow it. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm back there. I'm a mess. Why? Because I love to see kids that love the Lord. It just, you know, when our kids were up here at the Christmas program two weeks ago, you're pa- I'm back there, I'm a mess. I hide from you guys, I'm a mess. And so, the, the, we are called to be the salt and the light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And you don't take that light and hide it under a bush, you set it on a lampstand so everybody can see it. But the problem is, when you become a light, as we're going to see next week now, with John the Baptist, when you become a light, a couple things happen. There's fruit, but there's also persecution. There's going to be fruit. God's going to use it to draw people unto himself, and you're going to have a chance to share your love of God with people. But there's also going to be people that say, dude, turn the stinking light off now. And if you don't, you're going to catch some heat, right? There's fruit, but there's also persecution. And we see here very clearly that, that they hate 
the light. They loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The closer we get to the light, the more our sins are exposed. As a result, there are two possible reactions. Deal with our sin or flee from the light. You know, it's not intellectual problems that keep people from trusting Christ. It's moral and spiritual blindness that keeps us from loving, keeps, us, keeps them loving darkness and hating the light. You know what? That's where we're all at if we don't know the Lord. We love our sin. We love our... But let me ask you a question. How's it working out? How's life going? If, you don't, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, let me ask you, how's life, how's life going? I can answer the question. Not good. Because you know what? You were created by God to have a relationship with God, and if you don't, life's a mess. You've tried all kinds of things, and maybe you're muddling along, and maybe you're, you know, from the world's perspective, you seem to be doing okay, but you know that something's missing. Because God created you to have a relationship with Him. I can't, be, I can't be fulfilled until I know God in a personal and intimate way. I can't. And so, I want to close this morning, and we'll look at John the Baptist next week, by verse 21. It says, But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they, may have, they, may, they have been done in God. So, when we sin, the only reason that we can have peace about the fact that we're sinners is to know that Christ paid the price for us. And I want to end with an analogy, and this is for all of you, again, who maybe are here and you don't know the Lord. And if you do know the Lord, I want to use this as an exhortation for you. But when my wife and I got married, I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to give you the proposal analogy again. I know you've heard it a few of you, but I'm going to, it's okay. When my wife and I got married, it was at, we got engaged at Shadowbrook Restaurant. I got down on my knee and surprised her like crazy. And, I, I, and most of you know I, I'd sold my, I had no money. So I was working at, I worked a side job with Rick, Rick and his dad, um, ch- chiseling out a uh, foundation of a bank. That was a lot of fun, 105 degree temperature. And then, and then I sold a bunch of my baseball cards. You know it must be love when I sold my baseball cards. And I went down and I bought her a ring, and it wasn't much because I didn't have any money. But at Shadowbrook, I got down on my knee, and I looked at her, and I asked her to be my wife. And she said yes. That, and that's a good thing. She said yes. Now, when I asked her to be my wife, she said, yes, I gave her the ring, and I put it on her finger, and it was a symbol to her, of my commitment to her, but it was a symbol to everybody around her that she was now spoken for, that she was going to be my wife, that we had a promise, and we were committed to each other. Now, on our wedding day, after we were married, it went from you know, that promise that I made to her and that ring that was on her hand, then something else happened. Her name changed. It went from Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston. She became my wife. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because I want to tell you that there's been a, the ultimate proposal. was when Jesus Christ hung on the cross. He didn't get out on his knee at Shadowbrook Restaurant. He hung on a cross, and he said, I want you to be my bride. I want you to be married to me. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. And if we say yes to his proposal, you know what happens? He doesn't give us a, a ring. He gives us something better. He gives us a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and it's a sign to us that we're His kids, that we belong to Him, but it's also a sign to the world around us that we've been commi- we're committed to Him. We're born again. People look and say, there's something different about you. And here's the last thing. That just as my wife took my name, when you say yes to His proposal, and then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, then and only then can you take His name 
And what is that name? It's Christian. How do you become a Christian? You say yes to his proposal. You invite him to come into your life. And his Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And you become part of his bride. And then you're a Christian. You're not a Christian because you go to church on Sunday. You're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian nation or because your grandparents were missionaries. You don't become a Christian by any good works or any great thing that you do. You could, Nicodemus could not become a Christian because he wore the black robes and he lived a life of piety and had all, all the holy stuff nailed. Only by being born again. And how are you born again? You say yes to his proposal. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this season. And we thank you, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you for that proposal. And we thank you that you're a God who so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. So, Father, I ask, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning, even one person, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would make that decision to say yes to your proposal this morning. To say, yes, you know what? I've been living my life without him. And I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. And maybe I've gone to church. Maybe I've been like Nicodemus from the world's perspective. And Lord, maybe they're also like the woman at the well. Their lives are such a mess that they don't think that you could forgive them. Lord, I pray that they would know right now that you love them so much. You'd rather suffer and die than live without them. So with every head bowed, I'm not going to make this real long. And Christians, just be praying for those who don't know the Lord. If there's anybody here, it's just this simple. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. God brought you here by divine appointment. If everybody else thinks you're a Christian already, don't worry about that. This is between you and the Lord. And, if, and I'm going to ask you just to do something real simple, just to raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to walk out of here having an intimate relationship with Him. And then all I'm going to do is pray a simple prayer with you, just confessing your sin and your need for Him as a Savior. If there's anybody here at all, just raise your hand right now. I want to pray with you. Is there anybody? Is there anybody at all? Don't worry about anybody else. No one else is thinking about you right now. God brought you here by divine appointment. He loves you so very much. Don't miss out on His love and His grace. Is there anybody at all? Anybody? Anybody else? God bless you, bro. Anybody else? Anybody else? You know what? There's no, no more significant moment in, the his, in your entire life than the moment you decide to give your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you guys so very much. There's anybody else? Don't let the enemy win. He loves you. Everybody repeat after me as we pray with these or raise their hands. Let's pray. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin and to make me a new creation. I invite you to rule and reign in my life, to fill me with your Spirit, to help me to walk with you. I believe that by confessing my sin, I become your child and I have the promise of heaven. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know what? The Bible says that when one person comes to know Christ, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it from your heart, you have the assurance of heaven. It's not hope so. It's not go out and see what good works you can do. But you've been born again. And you know what? What an awesome moment. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you didn't, for whatever reason, 
I want to encourage you. You can come talk to me, one of the pastors afterward. If you need prayer for anything, we're here. We want to minister to you guys. Let's stand and close the worship song.